Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, saints. Well, that's, what's funny about that, Richard? Just want to say a word about the scripture lessons that we've started incorporating into our service. That's going to come and go. The reason it's come is because we're in a book of the Bible uh, together, this time in Philippians, where the, the, re- the readings for the sermon will be shorter. We were in the book of Acts, and the readings were chapters in length, and so that took up all the time that we felt we could afford for reading scripture together. But that's a very historical thing to do, is to sit together under the public reading of scripture, and we want to maintain that commitment. God has given us opportunity through this time to have other readings outside of our sermon text, and I'm glad for it. There's different methods and modes in the history of the church for how how do you decide what scriptures you're reading. There's different systems and solutions for that in history. This church used to read a chapter of scripture each week, working through different books of the Bible. What we're going to do through this series is we're going to, Pastor Phil largely is just going to hand select a couple of passages, probably Old and New Testament by and large, to um, complement the worship service and the sermon um, emphasis of the week, okay? But it's a good thing in a way that we signal our dependence on God to speak through his word. We recently began a series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, and that letter follows the logic and the form of of an ancient letter of friendship with one major difference, and that is as as, as Paul is taking up this form, he is Christianizing it. He's infusing it with his deep understanding of Jesus and fellowship in the gospel, and so it soars at, in, in itself, in its form, uh, high above any uh, uh, letter in history of its kind. And this is why people are still talking about it all over the world, even today, 2,000 years later. God is speaking through it. We saw the beginnings of what Paul was doing in this regard last week as we looked at his opening greeting. He inserted there two terms of potent gospel identity, Saints and, and slaves, bondservants. And he continues in this same Christianizing vein um, in this next section, which is really a report that he makes on his prayers for the Philippians. Hold on, Siri has been activated. And I don't know the first thing about how to get rid of her. Push a button. It worked. We have this, it's, it was typical in ancient letters to follow up the opening greeting with wishes for good health to the recipients. We have that tradition today when we write letters, dear so-and-so, I hope this letter finds you well. Paul's just following that same trend, but he's Christianizing it. He's transforming it. He's not just wishing good for his recipients. He's praying for their good. And what he does in doing so, is he reveals and teaches the kind of good, what good is, and what the kind of good that we should seek. He's seeking their spiritual good. And he also opens up and fills out the picture of what really good prayer is, and what it consists of, the spirit in which it's made, and what it asks for. 
So that's what this section, verses 3 through 11, is. It's a report on Paul's prayers for his dear friends, the Philippians. Let's read it together and see what it has to teach us. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's opening prayer report here has three pretty distinguishable parts. The first part, which is verses 3 to 6, Paul describes there the spirit in which he prays for the Philippians. In the second part of this passage, verses 7 to 8, he gives the reason that the reason why he is praying in this spirit, why it's appropriate and right for him to feel the way that he does. And in the third part, which is what we're going to look at next week, verses 9 to 11, Paul reveals the end to which he prays. This is where he gives us the content of his prayers for them. We're going to talk about that next week. So today we're looking at verses 3 to 9, the first two of three parts on this section of prayer. The first part of the passage reveals the spirit in which Paul prays. One thing that immediately stands out here is the frequency of Paul's prayers. He emphasizes this. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then in verse 4, always I'm offering prayer. And he also talks about his every prayer. Paul is really emphasizing that he does this often. That when, he, when they come to mind, he thinks of them fondly. And he doesn't just reminisce in fondness. He prays for them. He uses that recollection as an opportunity to lift them up in prayer. Another aspect that Paul draws attention to here is the inclusivity of his prayers. He prays for them all without exception. In verse 4, he says, my prayer for is for you all. There's nobody in the church that's left out as Paul is lifting them up in prayer, not even those people who are presently giving him heartburn. Nor is he only praying for the people who are giving him heartburn. <laughs> he is praying for them all. He lifts them all up together in an inclusive and generous spirit. Those are a couple of the facets that, that fill out the picture of Paul's spirit as he lifts up this people in prayer. But we even see it more so in the emotions that he claims to feel regarding these dear brothers and sisters. And thinking of the Philippians often and thinking of them all, Paul is aware of some emotions that he feels and adds to his prayer. The first is, he feels thankful. 
He feels thankful as he recalls their past and shared experiences together. In verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. What did Paul have to remember between him and the Philippians? Well, for starters, how God had led him to them in the first place. We read about this in Acts 16 last semester. And Paul was led by a revelation of the Spirit of God to this place, to these people. And he remembers their initial acceptance of, his, of himself and of his message. It was the first they had heard of the gospel and they received it and believed. He remembers that. He remembers them, and this is emphasized in this passage, he remembers them standing with him when he was persecuted in their town for the sake of Jesus Christ. He had done a favor, a kindness to a slave girl. Yes, it was out of annoyance, but he, he exercised the demon from her. She had been bringing much profit to her masters through the art of divination, and that loss of income was felt, got them angry, and they stirred up trouble for Paul, and that resulted in Paul being publicly flogged and imprisoned for his ministry. And the Philippians stood with him. They didn't abandon him. That didn't cause them to scatter or give up hope or lose their confidence or trust in the Lord. They stood with Paul. He remembered that. Paul probably had at least one, maybe two, follow-up visits with this people on his third missionary journey. We read uh, in Acts 20 of a whole week that he spent there during the Feast of Pentecost, not Pentecost, Passover, one year. And so he has other memories that were made other times that he visited him. He had a lot to remember about this group of believers, and they were very precious to him, and it filled him with thanks. Are you thankful for the brothers and sisters that God has surrounded you with in this church? Well, you say that. And I hope it's true. Do you lift them up in prayer to God as an expression of your thanks? Do you return thanks to God? Because that's really where our thankfulness is tested. Whether we pray in a spirit of thanks for the gifts he's given us. Thankfulness is not what you'd say is native to us. That's not like our natural inclination or bent. What is natural to us in our fallen nature in Adam? Ingratitude. That's what's native and natural. And we spend a lot of our life fighting ingratitude, giving in to ingratitude, unfortunately. Ingratitude is a deeply seated problem in the human heart. Paul, in Romans 1.21, says that it was ingratitude that plunged the world into sin. He says, for even though they knew God, speaking of Adam and Eve, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. So, and their ingratitude was a key factor in what led them into sin, where they felt they deserved more than they were getting. They had absolutely everything except one prohibition, and Satan said, well, you know, God doesn't want you to have that one thing. And that little bit of ingratitude plunged the whole world into sin. Ingratitude is a deeply seated problem in our fallen heart. The gospel comes to set all things right again. And one of the early fruits 
and evidences of the gospel at work in our heart is a restoration of our gratitude. How does it do it? How does the gospel make us grateful and thankful for the gifts God has given us? Well, it does it by changing our perspective, completely flipping our normal perspective on things. In our pride, we tend to think that we're very important and that we deserve better than we're getting. That's what we think and feel, that we deserve better than we're getting. And the gospel comes and it reminds us, it does a hard reset, and it wakes us up to the truth, the reality that we actually deserve eternal torment in hell. That's like the first principle of the gospel. You deserve God's wrath and curse and eternal torment in hell. That's what you deserve. And if you don't get a hold of that first principle of the gospel, I don't, whatever good news you think you're holding on to, it isn't gospel news. Because the gospel is an answer to that fundamental problem in your life. And the answer that is that it, the gospel provides in its second principle is this, that God was in Christ reconciling the lost and fallen world to himself, not counting their trespasses, including their sin of ingratitude against them. And at quite intensely personal and high price to himself, the lifeblood of his own son was paid so that you could be forgiven and loved and accepted by God and not have your sins and trespasses counted against you and you could not undergo the punishment of eternal torment and hell. And that really resets your perspective on things if you get a hold of that and live out of it. Suddenly, everything that you have in your life is this incredible mercy. Everything shy of eternal torment and punishment in hell is a, is a mercy, an undeserved mercy and kindness from the Lord to you. Something to be Think, to give him thanks for, something to think, oh my goodness, to luxuriate in his goodness. The heart that is, the mind and heart that's trained in the gospel can even find in trials and difficulties and incredible suffering and loss, evidences of God's mercy and things to give him praise and thanks for. That's how incredible this change of perspective uh, what the, the incredible things it does for us. Apart from the gospel, we are bound to live lives of ingratitude, and ingratitude is a, is, is a commitment to live a life of restlessness and unhappiness. You can, you can have an abundance of incredibly good things in your life and not be satisfied, and you can see that in a culture all around us. You can see it in your own life. If you don't have eyes to see and recognize the kindness of God and to give thanks regularly for the mercies and blessings that he has poured out into your life, then you need to go back to the gospel and have your eyes checked. Have your sight restored. You need to see things for what they are. And as we think about people, which is the, the principal blessing of life, People, souls, affection and love between members of Christ's body, affection and love between a husband and wife, between parent and child, people. This is the most precious gift of God in the world. 
are you thankful for the brothers and the sisters that God has blessed you with? And do you return thanks to God for them? Are you thankful for a godly spouse? For a godly roommate? A godly mother or father? Godly church? Your youth group and youth group leaders? Your home group? Your Christian friends? Paul was thankful for his friends, the Philippians. He didn't take them for granted, but carried them before God's throne in prayerful thanks. We should not take one another for granted. We don't deserve this. Who do you think you are to be dissatisfied with the people of God in your life? To grumble and complain. Who do you think you are? You're forgetting yourself. Listen to the gospel and remember that everything you have, and especially the people of God in your life, warts and all, are a gift and a mercy that you don't deserve. And listen, there's a lot about us that isn't lovable. It's hard to love. But that should not keep us from being regularly thankful for one another and prizing and cherishing one another truly from the heart as Paul did. Paul's attitude of thanksgiving undoubtedly contributed to and intensified in him the next feeling that he is aware of as he writes to these and prays for the Philippians, and that's a feeling of joy. They give him a lot of joy, the thought of this group. Paul felt joy as he thought of their long-standing and ongoing participation with him in the gospel. He writes in verse 4 how he's always offering prayer with joy in his every prayer for them all. And he says this is in view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the day they heard of it to the very day that he's writing this group of people have given Paul joy as they have participated with him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How, has, how have they participated with Paul? What does he even mean by participation? The Greek word there is koinonia, which is most often translated as fellowship. But the kind of fellowship that Paul has in mind here seems to be in the context something more than just like they have a shared interest in the same thing or a shared appreciation for a thing, or a shared experience. They've actually cooperated in a project together, a venture. That seems to be from the context what he's getting at. And the venture, he means, is the advance and progress of the gospel and the expanding kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the venture that they have participated and experienced together. What are some of the ways that they have participated with Paul in the gospel? Well, first and foremost, by believing it themselves. The gospel advances, the kingdom of the Lord advances as it conquers every hard and unbelieving heart. And there are many in Philippi who Paul had witnessed and observed the gospel triumph in their heart and life. 
through the power of the Spirit of God. And it gave him joy to see the kingdom expand in that way by their own acceptance of it. The knowledge and understanding and the report of their work and progress and evangelism and care of souls in the church there, which Epaphroditus had brought to Paul there in Rome on their behalf, gave Paul joy. Ah, they're vibrant, they're active, they're growing, they're advancing this same cause, the cause that that we have been, that I'm involved in in my life, that this is my life's calling. And it gives me joy that they're sharing in that work and furthering it there back in Philippi. Also, their financial support of Paul and his ministry, which started almost immediately. They, when Paul left Philippi after his first visit, went down the road to Thessalonica, they sent a gift of money after him to help him in any way he needed it there in Thessalonica as he ministered in another town. That's an expression of their joy in the kingdom advancing and in Paul himself as a principal minister and advocate for the, the, for the gospel. And they had, they had given Paul money to help him in any way he needed. And they had done it just recently again through Epaphroditus. They heard Paul was in prison in Rome and they sent a gift of money to help him in that time. So in many ways, for many years, these folks have faithfully participated with Paul in his life's calling to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that thought filled Paul with great joy. Now, a cynic would look at that and say, well, there's nothing really notable about that. What's, there, what's commendable about Paul in being supported and rejoicing in people that support you? <laughs> of course, that's just natural. And didn't he, Jesus even say in the Sermon on the Mount that um, if you love those who love you, you don't have any particular reward for that because anybody can do that. It's loving the unlovable. That's what is commendable. In fact, I could make a case here that Paul's appreciation and joy in these people is self-serving. That's what the cynic could say. Takes one to know one. Is it self-serving for Paul to rejoice in their help of him and their work in the same project in advance of the gospel? Is that self-serving? We know it's not. We absolutely know it's not because of the word that Paul used for himself from in the first verse. This is not his project. It's not his kingdom. He's just a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the Lord. He loves his cause. He's only a servant under him. And it gives him great joy to see the kingdom of the Lord advance because it glorifies him. And it gives him great joy to see anybody who will participate in that with him. Gives him joy, not because it's, Selfish in any way, but because it's advancing the Lord that he loves, and it's an overflow of that love. Do you want to make your pastors happy? Say yes. Get engaged in the mission of advancing the kingdom of the Lord in our town. Get engaged in it. Show us that that's your principal joy in life, is the thought of being used in some way yourself as a church, as a small group, as a youth group, whatever, in, that, that, that it gives you, that your principal joy in life is to be involved in expanding Christ's kingdom, to see people coming into that kingdom, soul after soul, to see the truths of the gospel 
overwhelming the, uh, the, the, and disarming the objections in the human heart as you minister and persuade and love the people around you. Get engaged in that work. This is not our kingdom. This is not my kingdom. I'm your servant. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his cause. He has placed us in a particular field. It's his field. That's the field of Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. This is his field, the place he's put us. We are to be like missionaries, laborers in this field to advance his kingdom and cause. Join us in that work. Signify your joy and delight in joining us as your pastors by getting out ahead of us, by encouraging us to be faithful, investing your gifts and your efforts in any way you can with joy and cheerfulness and eagerness as we seek to advance the kingdom of the Lord. Standing strong together with one another in the face of opposition like the Philippians is a sign of that. If it comes, be ready to take a stand together. There's nothing more thrilling for your pastors than to see you engaged in the work of building the kingdom of Christ. There's another and a final emotion regarding the Philippians that moves Paul to pray for them often, and that is confidence. He feels confident about them. Paul's filled with confident hope about the Philippians as he reflects on the fruit of their life and of God's purposes for their future. In verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's got to be one of the great promises of all Scripture. Where would we be without the Apostle Paul saying that? We'd be much the poorer spiritually. He just threw it into a letter of thanks to his friends. Such a powerful, hopeful truth. God finishes what he starts. And he finishes it well. He brings it to perfection. Perfection is what's needed. When we come to the day of Christ and stand before him, perfection is what's needed. Listen to this from Psalm 24. David says, Who may ascend until the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Perfection is what's required. And God perfects his people for that day. It's what he, it's what, perfection is what God aims at. And what he aims at, he hits bullseye. Has the Lord begun a good work in you? I'm not asking whether it's a great work. I'm not asking if it's a perfect work. I'm only asking if it's begun. Is it a begun, started work? Do you have faith 
even if it's small like a mustard seed and imperfect and, and struggling? Do you love God even if it's imperfectly? Do you want to live to please the Lord even though you often falter? Well, that right there is a cause for great hope before God. These are the signs that God has begun his new creational work in you. And what God starts, he finishes and perfects. And he uses all the circumstances of our life and maybe especially the difficulties and the struggles and the trials of our life to further and bring about more and more his good and perfect work in us and to make us more and more into the image of his son, into the maturity of sainthood, which he has established and declared that we are. We become more of what we are day by day in, his, in time as he perfects us. We'll stand before God only on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit of God works in our lives to apply those merits in such a way that we actually grow more and more holy. And we're called and commanded to love that and to pursue it in our lives. And, but here we have this wonderful promise that we can just lay back in and <laughs> rest in. That at the end of the day, it's not your work, but God's work that's being perfected. And it's on him and his strength to accomplish what he has set out to do. Where is your confidence? What is your hope? Is it in yourself, in your efforts, in your plan? Where is your hope for your marriage, for your parenting? Where is your confidence for our growth together as a body of believers, a church? Is our hope as a church in pretty colors painted on the corner of our building? You know, if the, if the colors don't work this year, maybe we could revise them next year. Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Where do we put it? I say this because it's an example of the kinds of places we we, we place our hope in vain things very easily. And here Paul calls us back to the, the ground source of hope, which is the character of God himself. This character here, that he is not an abandoner of his projects. He doesn't back out of commitments from a loss of interest or boredom. He doesn't lose heart when he encounters resistance. He's, he is all-knowing and all-powerful. He who knows the end from the beginning certainly knows his own mind and doesn't change it. And what he sets out to do, he completes. And he, if he has begun a good work in you, in your child, in your brother or sister, in us, he's going to bring it to completion. We are all, at our best, works in progress. This church is a work in progress. And if you know or have a lick of sense, 
then you know you've got a long way to go. And we together have a long way to go. But we have our hope in God to carry us where he intends to bring us, which is into his glorious kingdom and into the perfection of the saints of God. How do we best demonstrate that our confidence is in God? You know, putting our confidence in God is not an absolving of ourselves from labor and effort. Paul, in this very letter, is going to call us to a lot of sweat and work. And there's a lot of effort that we are called to put in, in the direction of God's promises, to bring them about as means of fulfillment. God works through means, and one of the principal means is our own work. But it's God's work that is primary and most important. Without his work, all of our labors are useless. And Paul's going to open that up in the most amazing way, right in the heart and center of this letter, with these words in chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you work it out. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that an amazing mystery? It's amazing. How do we best demonstrate that we have faith that God's at work? How do we, what's the primary way, the first way that we demonstrate that our hope and confidence are in God to work in our lives? to bring about his good purposes. We pray. That is the principal demonstration that God has given us to show and signal that our dependence and our hope is in him. I want to put in a word about our prayer meetings on Monday evenings. They start at 7. They end, they're pretty brief. They end at 7.40 usually. It's a wonderful time of prayer. Also opportunity for fellowship. Children come and the children pray, and it's super encouraging. If you haven't been, please come and join us. We've tried to structure it so that it's reasonable for each of us to get there once a month, and we've broken it up by small groups. I'm saying this because I'm not happy as a pastor by the, the investment that you're making in the prayer meetings. I want to see more people there. Because I want to see confidence in the Lord's power. That's what prayer is. It is a confession of confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and to reign and to work for his good pleasure in this world in response to our desires and our needs as he gives us the desires of our heart. So come. We've tried to divide it up by small group. Structure it so that one night a month, basically, you're on call to join us at the prayer meeting. If your family can't make that specific time for whatever reason, I understand. But would you make it as a, as a commitment of your household or as of you individually that you're going to come some other night and not just wait for the next time your small group is scheduled to be here? This is how we express our confidence in God to work. Hudson Taylor, great Missionary evangelists used to say that when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And it's God's work that we want to see furthered 
in ourselves, in our homes, in our church, in our community. Do you pray for your Christian brothers and sisters? A follow-up question that comes from this passage, I think, based on Paul's and his spirit, is this. Do you feel anything (laughs) towards your brothers and sisters when you pray, as you pray? And do you feel anything analogous to the way Paul feels about his brothers in Philippi? Paul prays for his friends with feeling, with warm feeling, with generous feeling, with thankful, joyful, optimistic, and I think we can say strong feeling. That's how he prays. And those feelings, he says, are appropriate and perfectly reasonable. He says in verse 7, it is only right that I feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And this is where he moves us into the second section of this passage, which reveals the reason that he prays in this spirit towards these, for these people. What is that reason? He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So they were not ashamed of Paul and his message or the opposition that it brought into his life. They were not ashamed of his chains. They supported him. They stood by him. And that experience of standing together on mission together for the Lord Jesus Christ over many years had established the deepest possible bonds of affection between Paul and this group of people. The deepest possible. And Paul does not attribute that bond, though, to human agency or to natural causes or just the sort of sociological realities of sharing together in a project. Much deeper than that. He says, he he grounds their closeness in their shared experience of God's grace. They had been partakers of grace together in trial. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So Paul received grace to preach the gospel and to be very bold in declaring the truth of God's word even if it brought lots of suffering and opposition and hardship into his life, they received grace to support him in it, to believe and not be led astray and fear or to cower in fear, but to stand with Paul and support him and even give him money to help him keep going. And they both were partakers of God's grace. Opposition and persecution. puts off a lot of promising Christians. Jesus warned about this in his parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where he talks about the different kinds of soil that the seed of the word, as it's scattered by preaching, falls on. Different kinds of soil of human hearts. And one of those types is rocky soil. And when he's opening up 
the meaning of that image for his disciples later. He says that the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, that's the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. It's grace from the Lord Jesus Christ that makes a human heart receptive to the seed of the word in such a way that it has fertile soil and depth of soil to receive that seed and cause it to grow up into a healthy, vibrant plant for God's glory. It's only the grace of God that produces that type of heart and response to the gospel such that not even the worst opposition that the devil can throw at it will shake them off their commitment to Christ and to God's people. When one of us suffers for the sake of Jesus and the rest of us stands with that brother or sister, we are partaking together of God's grace. It's grace that causes one of us to have the faith to take a stand for Christ and to suffer for it. It's faith and grace that causes the rest of us to stand and support and love and fellowship with that brother or sister who's suffering in that way. And Paul's shared experience of grace with the Philippians, these were many, and his consequential love for them was so deep, he was able to write with all sincerity these words. Verse 8, God is my witness. How I long for you, with, for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you and I feel anything like that, any commensurate way towards our brothers and sisters? Are we able to speak words of love and longing naturally for the people that God has put in our life here in this church? I fear that for some of us, maybe for many of us, the answer is no. Do we even want that level of intimacy and fellowship and closeness? Or do we kind of like to keep our distance and have our space and, you know, come to church and hear, you know, hear some good singing, participate, have a spiritual experience? But what what are we after? What do we want? Paul's experience of fellowship was deeply relational and heartfelt. He used words like longing. We should want that. We need that, actually. Whether we want it or not, we need it. And it reflects the spirit-filled nature of the church, its identity is to be a tight-knit, close, affectionate body. And such levels of intimacy and friendship are foretastes of the heavenly kingdom. Heaven is a place of love and intimacy and knowledge and openness where we can let our guard down, where we are free to love because sin does not enter in to complicate or get in the way or hinder us. Jonathan Edwards has this wonderful sermon 
called, I think it's called Heaven, a World of Love. And his argument in that sermon is, since heaven is a world of love, and he does a great job of, of exploring from Scripture what that looks like, what it is, heaven's a world of love, he argues that since that's what it is, and that's where we claimed our citizenship and where we are aiming to go, that even now today, we, you and I should start embracing a life of love, seeking more and more to grow in love and experience a foretaste of that love and our human relationships with one another. The kind of close, intimate, loving fellowship that Paul experienced with the Philippians is something that happens sometimes. And it's there in the scriptures to show us an example of what can be and what we should desire for ourselves with regard to one another. Let's assume that we do desire it. How does such a bond of affection grow? How is it established? And how does it grow? There's a lot of ways scripturally to answer that question, but I want to emphasize the way that Paul but the thing that Paul's emphasizing here, which is that the context for Paul growing in his love and affection for this group of people was shared mission and shared suffering and trial together on the mission that God had set them. It's in the trenches of the Lord's service that bonds of affection and trust and commitment are established. They're forged there in battle, in cooperative venture for the advance of Christ's kingdom. We've all watched war movies. We may have read a war novel. We've known a soldier or two. And we've observed that there's something about combat and battle that forges bonds of not just commitment, but of affection between men that their wives can't even understand. What was it that forged this bond between Paul and the Philippians? What created that incredible relationship of a love and affection between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament? It's shared battle, shared mission, standing shoulder to shoulder for, for the same cause, suffering together for the same name and reason, and growing naturally, supernaturally, in love and commitment, fellowship with one another. This is what we should desire for ourselves, and that's the great recipe for it is that we would work together, that we would suffer together, that we would pursue the kingdom of Christ together, according to our gifts, according to our abilities, in our small groups, in our homes, in our marriages, in our youth group, as a body in this town, that we'd get on mission, that we'd be zealous for Christ's cause, and that the happy result of that is that we find that we have incredible friendships that, can't, that the world can't even touch. 
in the depth of their affection and love. And that's possible for you and me and for you and you. And it's what Scripture holds out as desirable. And may God help us to find it in the coming days. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this part of your word and what it reveals about the spirit of the Apostle Paul and his love for all the saints. And I pray that you'd grow in us that same love and a spirit of thankfulness and joy and confidence. And that we would express that love which you give to us in prayer for one another regularly. And that we would work together and seek new ways and new avenues for working together to stand for the Lord and to further his cause and to glorify his name in our community. I pray, Lord, that we would be knit and bound together by a shared commitment and experience of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pour out that grace of friendship into our midst. Make us to feel and to know, to experience and savor the love that comes from you, but is felt and experienced in one another. Help us, Lord, to be thankful for the gift and treasure of fellowship. To not despise it, but to really seek after it and to cherish every opportunity that we have to get to know and to delight in the saints who are in Bloomington. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.